This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 10 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in the burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at uh, rounding out the series on idols of the heart. And 1 Samuel is about the life of David, uh, the most celebrated king in the history of Israel. But this passage is about Saul, and, that's, and Saul is the first king of Israel. And um, it's going to really teach us about the power of sin and the power of idols. And idols are anything apart from God that we rely on to give us a sense of significance, a sense of worth in our lives. And, and this story is a powerful story about Saul. Saul eventually becomes this power-hungry, abusive tyrant And his life just spirals into tragic ruin. But Saul's life didn't start out this way. His life didn't start out like that. If you read the first parts of this narrative on Saul, the first several chapters of this book, Saul is this dynamic, attractive, he's a very decent, morally righteous, religious, even humble at first, a very humble person at first. He's wise, he's merciful to his enemies, and yet, how did this man, how did his life, spiral down eventually into pride, into anger, evil, and jealousy, and murder. How did he do that? A few of those answers are right here in this text. Four things we're going to see. Uh, and uh, I preached this once before, and I was trying to re- reconfigure the sermon uh, because I like to shape it and change it in different ways, but I really couldn't get around these four. I chopped it down five, five points to four. We have the context, the character, the cause, and the cure of sin. The context of sin, 
the character of sin, the cause of sin, and the cure for sin. All C's. Uh, it's very cute. Okay, so we're going to start with uh, uh, context. Saul, Saul, I'm going to give you the background of this text. Saul, he's been given direction from God. If you read verse 18, this text summarizes it. The Amalekites, they're this neighboring tribe of Israel. They're the enemies of Israel, very evil, wicked people. God says to Saul, because they're a violent people, because they're given to extreme violence and they're wicked, he says, I want you to act with a decisive uh, act of justice. I want you to engage them in battle. I want you to defeat the Amalekites. And when you defeat them, I don't want you to leave one person alive. I don't want you to leave one animal alive. I want you to defeat them, destroy them all. Go in there, rout your enemies. Don't take anything back with you. Why? Why does he say that? Because kings, whenever they went into a country and routed their enemies, they would always bring back the wealth and the riches. It was a sign of victory. But he says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go in there and I want you to wipe the entire country out. Why? Because God didn't want Saul to be like the other kings around him. The other kings around him killed for power. Stepped all over people for their plunder, for the loot. He says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go in there and be just because I am just. What Saul does instead is he keeps the best of the livestock. And the reason why he does this is because it was an agrarian culture. In those days, your wealth was determined by how much cattle, how much land, how much livestock you had. It was, he basically was bringing back the nation's capital, the enemy's capital. And he takes the king of the Amalekites as prisoner, Agag the king. But Saul, so Saul he, he, did, he disobeys. And by, do, by doing this, he, Saul is acting the way the Amalekites were acting. What God was speaking against And a king is the authoritative representative of his nation. And so if Saul is given to to greed and to plunder and to loot and and to power, then the nation is given to greed and to loot and to plunder and to power, given to violence, and they're power hungry and they're greedy in their condition. That's what happens. God says, I want you to reject Saul as king. He turns to Samuel and says, I want you to reject Saul as king. Now, notice, later in verse 19, there's this question. Why did you not obey the instruction of the Lord? And verse 20, Saul doesn't give a bunch of reasons. He doesn't give a bunch of excuses. What he says is, but I did. I did obey the Lord. And when Samuel is asking, why didn't you obey? He doesn't, there's no word for obey in the Hebrew Bible. Believe it or not, there's no word for obey. Samuel asks Saul, why did you not listen to the words of the Lord? Why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? Why did you not listen to the instructions, listen to the voice of the Lord? And and Samuel comes back and he says, uh, I mean, Saul comes back and he says, "I, I did listen. I did listen to the voice of the Lord. And Samuel comes back and he says, you say you listened. Maybe you did listen on one level, but you didn't really listen. He didn't really take heed. The voice of the Lord didn't penetrate your life in a way that it shaped you. You didn't embrace it. You didn't love it. Because to listen to the voice of the Lord is greater than sacrifice. To truly grasp the voice of the Lord, to uphold it, to be affected by it, to be shaped by what you heard, that's greater than the fat of rams. That's what he says. In other words, you can hear the voice of the Lord on one level 
and completely disregard it on another. You know what that means? What does that mean? Ever since the garden, ever since the garden of Eden, sin begins with this distortion of reality. God has a command for Adam, and right from the beginning, there is a distortion of his words, a distortion of the truth that later on opens you up to receiving the truth as a lie. And so as the enemy starts to work on Adam and Eve, he, he, he implants this lie. A distortion of reality turns into a lie, a deception, and that turns into self-deception. And Saul says here, I did listen. I did obey. God says, I want you to wipe the entire country out. Don't leave a single animal alive. Don't leave a single person alive. And yet, Samuel comes back and says, what is this lowing of cattle I hear? What is this bleeding of sheep I hear? Did you leave people? What is this king doing here? You didn't obey the voice of the Lord. You didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. And Saul says, I did, but I did. Self-deception. Sin begins with a distortion. Sin begins with a doubt that leads to a distortion. This is called self-deception. What is it? It's the amazing capacity for the human heart to hide the truth from yourself about yourself. It's the main reason why we make every unwise decision. It's the main reason why we lie. It's the main reason why we commit evil in our lives. It's the main reason why some of us, at the least deep inside, are given to violence. It's the main reason why we sin. Self-deception. What happened here? That was the first point, the background, the context. Let's look at the character of sin. How does it look? First, sin begins with ignoring your conscience. Samuel comes to see Saul, verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul immediately comes out and says, Ah, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've listened to the voice of the Lord. The first thing Saul says is, Yeah, I just want you to know, Samuel, I listened to the voice of the Lord. When you, if you know anything about children, uh, when you walk into a room and your child has been playing there for a while, maybe you have a nephew or a niece or a cousin, a, child is a baby cousin, a child's playing in a room, and you go in and the child immediately turns around and says, I didn't do anything wrong. You know the child has done something wrong. You're thinking, what did you do, right? That's what happened. Uh, when the child hides and you approach, it's very similar to the Garden of Eden because the moment Adam sinned, what did he do? He hid. And God had to seek him out. That's where the self-deception begins. The first thing uh, uh, the child says, I did nothing. You know something's wrong. Saul here says, I listened. Right off the bat, Samuel's just walking up. Saul comes out and says, ah, hello. I listened to the voice of the Lord. What's happening? His conscience is acting up. He knows that he's done something wrong, and he has to counteract against that conscience because he's self-deceived. And so he ignores his conscience. And instead of being truthful, he knows, but he doesn't really know. That's what self-deception is. And it begins with this. It begins with ignoring your conscience. So I'm going to give you a couple examples. I've shared these examples before, some of these. Uh, my mother is at this age where you have to be more conscious about your health. My mother is at this age. She's, in her, she's entering into her 70s. She has to be more conscious about her health. Uh, when, you're, when you're 20 and you don't feel right, it's probably the flu. It's probably some malaise that's going to come and go. But when you're 70, anything, any small thing could easily become deadly. And when those things become prolonged in your life, when you have prolonged pain in your life, um, we always tell her, you have to get checked out. 
why don't you get checked out? Go see a doctor. You have insurance. Go see a doctor. Make an appointment, but she doesn't. So finally, you have to have some sort of an intervention. You sit her down, and uh, when you ask her, what is the problem? Why don't you go see a doctor? You have to do this. Don't you see how critical it is? You're not 20 anymore. Don't you see how critical it is? She'll admit to you in her unfiltered moments, she'll say to you, well, initially I used to think it was a hassle. You know, I mean, why do I need to do this? I don't, I know it's going to pass. But at my age now, I start to think and I start to realize it's not because I'm not sick. It's not because it's a hassle. I'm actually worried that I might be sick. And so I want to ignore, I know I need to see a doctor, but I don't want to see a doctor. I know I may be sick, but I don't want to be sick. and I don't want to be told I'm sick. Your conscience is telling you, conscience is telling you that, that there is a possibility of something here. But you run, but you hide. You don't really want to know. I'll give you another example. This one might hit a bit more home. You have a friend, a woman, who's desperate to get into a relationship with somebody. This woman has a pattern and a history of jumping from one relationship to the next constantly. There's this pattern of relationships that go wrong in her life. And uh, she goes where all the men are. So uh, it may be parties, it may be uh, happy hours, after hours, lounges, uh, all in the city. Um, Everything she does is really shaped around attracting men in her life, the way she talks. Um, And um, she meets this guy, she hooks up with this guy. It's a hookup culture, right? So she hooks up with this guy. And, you know, eventually they encounter uh, each other and she wants to introduce her, him to, his, to her friends. And uh, so they all get together and she introduces them. And right off the bat, the friends, they don't have a good impression of him. And then they start to ask around and they kind of understand and learn a bit more about him. And they have, they have an intervention with her. And they tell her, they plead with her, they tell her, listen, we can't tell you what to do. But all we can tell you is this guy is no good. This guy has a terrible reputation there's only one thing this guy wants, and it's not a long, uh, deep-rooted relationship with you. Although she knows, she doesn't really know. In her heart, her heart may be telling her, this is too fast. I mean, you're going too fast. You don't even know this guy. This isn't a really good idea. You don't really know him. You know, but she doesn't really know. She doesn't really know. I'm going to take it another level. This one I heard from my favorite preacher. Um, I was so amazed by the story when I first heard it. I had to actually look it up. It's an amazing account. Near the end of World War II, the first town in Germany um, whose concentration camp was liberated was uh, the town of Ordruf. And uh, um, they were, as they were being liberated, the German guards, knowing that the Allies were on their way to get rid of the evidence of all that they were doing in this concentration camp, they wanted to take these... 2,000 bodies of people that had been shot and killed. It's a tremendous tragedy. They took these bodies and they wanted to throw them into these ovens as soon as they can to incinerate all the bodies, all the evidence, so that when the allies got there, they wouldn't get caught right, with all these murders on their hands. But they did get caught. The allies arrived sooner than they expected and they were caught pretty much red-handed, literally red-handed. Unbelievable sight. They say that General Eisenhower was there. General George Patton was there. Two hours later, George Patton arrives. General George Patton, his nickname was Blood and Guts. But when he looked in and saw what he saw, they said he turned, he came out, he turned, and he vomited. It was so disgusting. 
Patton was furious. He looked, you know, he, he found out that every night he thought about it and he said, well, it's a town and there are townsfolk out there. These men have to have some sort of outlet. They must be going into town. And he found out uh, that what the men would do is they would go out into town, they would womanize, they would drink, they would brag about what they've done. So he figured the people of the town must know what's going on here in this camp. And so he went out there and he started to investigate, ask around, talk to people. Um, and a lot of them said, actually, no, I, didn't really, I don't really know what goes on in there. I don't know anything about it. What does Patton do? He says, listen, whether you know or not, whether you're the mayor, his wife, or just a citizen, or even a person who's a resident here for the time being, you are held responsible for what has gone in here because you know what's going on in here. And so he literally dragged out the entire town, including the mayor and his wife, to come out and help dig graves to bury these bodies. And apparently it took several days. Some accounts say a day. Some accounts say it took two days. They couldn't finish that night. Um, They spent the entire day burying these bodies. That night, when everybody went back, the mayor and his wife hung themselves, and they left a note. You know what the note said? We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know but we knew. Now think, if the modern era, the most scientifically, educationally, technologically, culturally advanced era in history is capable of this kind of violence, then it can't be because we lack education or science or technology or culture. You get that? The same thing that enabled these people to commit these global atrocities is the same thing that keeps my mom from wanting to go to the doctor. It's the same thing that keeps this woman from admitting that she's desperate. And that's the only reason why she's doing these things. We have an enormous capacity to hide the truth about ourselves from ourselves. We ignore our conscience. I spent a lot of time on that first reason. I'm going to go into the next one. I'm going to kind of speed through these next ones. Next one, notice Samuel says in verse 14, Yeah, you obey the voice of the Lord. You listen to the voice of the Lord. What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What then is this lowing of cattle that I hear? In Hebrew, what Saul says is, Saul says, I listen to the voice of the Lord. There's an irony here. Samuel's saying, okay, Saul, you listened. Well, I'm listening. And you know what I'm listening to? I'm listening to you not listening. That's really the irony here in the text. That's literally what he's saying. Saul, okay, I get it. You listened. You listened? Well, I'm listening. You know what I'm listening to? You not listening. <laughs> That's really what he's saying. Okay? What does Saul say? Well, the soldiers brought them. Those cows, those sheep, the soldiers brought them. Actually, he doesn't even use the word soldiers in Hebrew. He says they brought them. He can't pin it on any single person, right? They brought them. That vague, unspecific third-person plural. He says, come on, you know how these guys are. You know how they are. You know, they, they're going to do this, right? Blame shifting. That's the second thing. That's my mom saying, go to the hospital. Oh, they're just going to make stuff up. So you're, or you're so dramatic. You're always thinking the worst of things. That's the woman friend who says, he tricked me. I didn't know. I mean, he, you know, I'm naive. You know, uh, I, I didn't know he was this type of person. To blame shift is what? To concentrate on the weakness of a circumstance or the weakness of an individual who is involved. You know, it's easy to do that, to blame somebody else for your flaws. 
You know, first of all, we tend to blame other people for our flaws primarily because it's the best way to prevent us, to keep us from having to face who we really are. And the tragedy is really, you know what the tragedy is? The tragedy is you'll never change then. You have this desperate need to change. You have these flaws that are actually killing you. It's the one thing that's keeping you from, from really growing and thriving and flourishing. But instead of focusing on those, you would think if you have this one barrier that's keeping you from growing a certain level, you have this one barrier, it's, it's many barriers, you would think that you would do whatever you can to focus on those barriers and clear them away. You would think that the natural inclination of the human heart is to do that, but it's not. The natural inclination of the human heart is to say, it's you, not me. You're the problem, not me. Deep inside, you didn't know, but you knew. And then secondly, you say, well, it's not my fault. It's someone else. And it's easy to do that. You know why? Because everyone is flawed. And everyone does uh, come out a little dirty in the end. We all make mistakes in any given situation. So it's easy to do that. We're all sinners. Uh, I'm going to give you another one. Saul says, okay, okay, okay. I I know. All right. I, I, I made some mistakes here. I did keep these animals. But, Samuel, I was going to sacrifice these animals. This was for the Lord. Samuel, don't you get it? We're going to have this great service. And in this great service, we're going to do all these good things and sacrificing these things for the Lord. Isn't that better? What is he doing? He's covering over himself with his religiosity. He's saying, I get it. Your idea was good. What God wanted, it was good. And I didn't quite follow all of it, but I had good intent. I had good intent. You know, I didn't want to do anything wrong with it. I wanted to take it and sacrifice it. I'm religious. I'm good. Don't you get it? Don't make me out to be a bad person. Another way to put it is this. Religion or moral goodness is often confused with faith. Our goodness is often confused. We confuse ourselves by our goodness with our faith in the Lord. And it becomes another way of deceiving ourselves about the reality of who we are. By the way, there are all sorts of non-religious people in this room who really don't believe the Bible, who look at all the hypocrites in the church, and they say, see, this is the reason why I don't believe. Look at their flaws. Look at their sinfulness. Look at their lies. Look at their cheating. Look at all the bad things that go on in the church. This is the reason why I don't believe. And what can I tell you? Both religious people or non-religious people um, that were self-justifying. And self-justification is the greatest contribution to our self-deception regarding our own pride, regarding our own sin, regarding our own selfishness. Where does this lead? Where does this lead us? You know, Tim Keller, uh, my favorite preacher, um, he, he brings out this interesting insight. And, um, you know, let me, let me kind of make it real for you. It, go, it kind of goes like this. Um, there are people in this room who are cheating in business or cheating in school Um, cheating in their relationships, Uh, but they say, well, I get I'm doing that, but I'm not cheating people the way Enron in in the early 2000s, the way they cheated people, right? The way the mortgage banker, the brokers uh, in in the late 2008 around there, the way they cheated millions of people. I'm not like that. I mean, they ruined their lives. But you know what the mortgage brokers are saying? 
You know, what the, you know what the people who worked in Enron, you know what they're saying? They're saying the same thing. They're saying, okay, I made some mistakes, but at least I'm not killing people for money, right? Like the mafia, right? I'm not, I'm not like the mafia. I don't kill people just for money, right? But you know, you know what the mafia people are saying? The mafia people, they say something too. They say, uh, well, okay, I kill people, but I'm not like a serial killer, right? I mean, at least the people that I kill, there's a reason why. I only kill people who really deserve to die, okay? But you know what the serial killers say? They say, okay, I kill people who don't deserve it, but I'm not like Hitler. First of all, everything goes back to Hitler. <laughs> you know, you know you're, it's bad when everything comes back to you in the end, okay? More people talk about Hitler than they do Adam, okay? You know what Hitler says? I don't know what Hitler says. Hitler, but he said something. But Hitler said something, okay? I can guarantee you Hitler didn't say, okay, I'm evil. It's because I'm a sinner, you know? I can guarantee you that. Nobody does that, actually. And that's the point. It makes it possible for the most moral, good people to spiral downward. Until you identify how self-deceived we are and how self-deception is working in our lives and how corrosive and twisting it is, once it starts, the road back is very, very long. Once it starts, you have to put an end to it. Unless you do, you are capable of the worst things. The worst things. What's the cause? What's the cause? You have to know why we run from certain truths about ourselves. We have to, we have to see why. And the answer is, is where Samuel says to Saul, very interestingly, in verse 17, he says this. He says, Though you were once small in your own eyes, didn't God anoint you as king? Once you were small in your own eyes, but the Lord has made you great. Why does he say this? He says, Saul, you always looked at yourself and you saw yourself as very, very small. But don't you get it? God anointed you. God chose you. God honored you. God loves you. God has made you great. Why does he say this? The answer is really in the beginning of the text. In verse 12, when Samuel's looking for Saul, the first thing it says when he goes looking for Saul, they say to him that Saul has gone down to Carmel, and there he set up a monument in his own honor. Right off the bat, Samuel knows what has happened. That Saul set up this monument in his own honor. And Samuel says to Saul, you were once small in your own eyes. God has made you great. Why do you need to set up these monuments first for yourself? That's the clue. Why do you need to set up a monument for yourself? You were so insecure. You have such a small view of yourself. Why did you need to keep the plunder? Why did you need to keep the livestock? Why did you need to build these monuments for yourself? Why did you need to keep this king alive? You know why? Because if you're a king and you conquer another country and instead of killing that king, you take that king under you, you are now a king of kings. You see that? They're trophy cases. They're monuments. Those are monuments too. He says, why did you need to keep the king alive? You're still trying to make yourself great. What God has done for you is not enough. You got this great God-sized hole in your heart. It's called sin. And, and you're trying to fill it. You think if you build this great big monument, that will be the thing that will plug that hole because your heart is leaking and it can't because it's God-sized. It's a God-sized hole and you can't fill it. Only God can fill that hole. And you've replaced it with these monuments. 
You replaced it with, the, with your own pursuit of becoming great. You, you, want, you need to look great in your own eyes. You, you want to convince yourself that you're great. You know what jealousy is? Jealousy is an admiration that hooks your idols. An idol is anything apart from God that you've set as something that you need in your life because if you don't have it, then you, can't, you don't feel great. You don't feel significant. You don't feel worthy. They're usually not bad things. Sometimes it's bad things, and if it's bad things, then we get, we get hooked into that, and we, and we call them addictions in a lot of ways. A lot of times it's addictions or there's some sort of deviant lifestyles, but, but reality is we're more, we should be more prone and more thoughtful of how we are addicted to the good things in our lives. An idol is anything we set apart in our lives as, that, that may be a good thing, usually a good thing, that we're hooked in because we need it for a sense of worth. A je- your jealousy is an admiration that hooks that idol. Someone, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Somebody has something that you need because if you have it, it, it makes you feel worthy. It gives you a sense of worth. Maybe someone else has the looks that you always wanted, that you felt like you needed. Somebody has the popularity that you need. Somebody has the job or the path, the career path that you just absolutely think, if I have that, then I know I'd feel significant. Then I know people will be proud of me. And that pr- if they're proud of me, if they approve of me, then I feel uh, worthy. If I have a certain type of lifestyle, a certain type of comfort, if I have a certain type of title, if I'm esteemed, if my reputation is held up a certain way and you will craft and work and labor, you know what you're doing? You're building a monument. You see what you're doing? If I just have a family, uh, if I have a, a certain type of family, I have a picture of what a perfect life would be and it's centered around having the perfect family and having the perfect protection in my life and having the perfect uh, home in my life, then I feel like I've arrived. It's something that you need that gives you a sense of worth. These are all monuments because if you don't have it, you will always find somebody in your eyes, your eyes play tricks, it's self-deception, points you to people that you think do have it, and it makes you feel inferior. You know, in the last few years, my wife and I, we suffered through, um, if you, whether you know this or not, we suffered through a series of miscarriages in our lives over the last couple of years. It has been incredibly painful in our lives. And, you know, over the years, you talk to a lot of friends who suffered from miscarriages. Some of the people keep it, it's a very private thing. And, you know, there's some wisdom in that, but at the same time, and I'm grateful for the community that we have, that we can open up and talk and share about these things and pray and pray with and have be prayed for. It's a wonderful thing. Um, but it's not uncommon, as I've kind of talked to friends over the years who've suffered in the same way, for them to say, you know, during that period, it was a very dark period for me, or it still is a dark period for me. Every time I look at somebody's child, I, I, I just automatically start to hate them. That's an amazing reaction, you know that? says a lot about what's going on because it's an idol that hooks you. And, and this person who has this thing that you so desperately want because then you feel like a woman. Then you feel like you are complete as a woman. And if I just have this thing, then I feel like I've arrived. Then I feel like I'm complete. But you look at somebody else who actually has that and you say, oh my goodness, then it, it hooks you. And, and I've, I've, I've talked to so many people who've suffered in that way, and they say, yeah, I can't even look at other people's children. I can't stand when I'm sitting next to somebody in the church and they have a pregnant belly, they say. You see that? It makes them feel inferior. It makes them angry. It makes them jealous. It makes them so angry at the Lord. You know the reason why Samuel says, your arrogance is a form of idolatry. That's what the Lord says. Your, that's what Samuel says. Your arrogance is a form of idolatry. Here's what's wrong with Saul. 
And it goes wrong with us. Our arrogance, our ego, our pride, it results in a boldness, but you don't have humility. You're trying to counteract fear. You're trying to pursue what you feel like you need, and you, you're very, very confident. You're very, very bold, but you, don't, you lack humility. And so what happens is when you don't have that humility that brings you back down and helps you, gives you the perspective of the Lord that breaks you, that makes you vulnerable, that, that draws in the compassion of God, that tenders, that makes your soul tender. If you don't have that, you have no restraint to keep you from building monuments. That's what happens. It's the self-deception that has run its course. You start to build. And you start to act superior because you feel inferior. It's why red states and blue states hate each other for their own reasons. It's why uh, they always look down on each other and have to pounce on each other. It's why some of us are driven for particular causes. And anyone who's not drawn into that cause because you're so passionate about it and this is what is righteous and if you're not drawn into that same cause, then everybody else is a fool and everybody else is, is not morally right or doesn't sense the social responsibility that we have. Some of our monuments, it's other people's approval. Most of our monuments, all of our monuments, it's other people's approval. Maybe it's the approval of your boss. Maybe it's the approval of your friends. Maybe it's the approval of your spouse. Maybe it's the approval of the public, gaining a public trust of people. It can be very, very simple. It's what you Instagram. It's what you snap on a daily basis. Because those are monuments. We work at those things, don't we? If God is how you know you're great, God's love, God's honor, God treasuring you, God delighting in you, if that is your monument, then, then you can handle the bad news about yourself. You can handle the truth about yourself, about anything about yourself. That truth can't destroy you. It won't destroy you. It can't destroy you because it will never undo God's love for you, God's faithfulness towards you, God's goodness, God's blessing in your life. But what if a monument to your own honor is your children or your job or something like that? Then you will not be able to accept anything that will jeopardize that thing that you idolize. If something were to happen, I mean, your greatest, think about your greatest nightmare. Imagine your greatest nightmare. It's going to revolve. Therein lies your idolatry. Imagine that thing that you just cannot lose. You will do whatever you can to protect that. This, by the way, is how you know something is a monument to your own honor. The thing that you can't accept the truth about. And as a result, we run, we hide, we have misdirect. We try to kind of covertly show ourselves to be a lot better than we are. We try to blame other people. We justify ourselves. We become very depressed when, when we're found out. You know, that's another clue. When you get found out, when it gets exposed, you become incredibly depressed because you were relying on yourself the entire time. And you fall into this uh, cycle of self-pity and self-righteousness. I've known people who are absolutely miserable. They come to the church. They enjoy this new context for a while. And then the sin comes out. And then the misery returns. And you know what happens? They turn on the church. They turn on their friends. They turn on their families. They turn on everyone. They turn on their jobs. They turn on their, their life situation, their life state, you know, how they were set up to fail. It's everyone's fault because it's, 
easy to do that. In fact, it's natural to do that. We're built that way when sin entered into our lives. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our spiritual DNA. It operates at an even lower level. I'm going to give you a story. Um, uh, think about how you drive. You know, my friends and I, we visit Boston. Um, I lived in Boston for 11 years. And so I know Bo- if, you, if you ever want to go to a more uh, like, illogical city plan, uh, it's Boston. Boston has uh, Harvard Ave and Harvard Street. Boston has Harvard Ave. Boston has like three Harvard Aves, okay? So which one and where? And sometimes they're in the same area, you know? So you really have to, to know the city to really know and navigate yourself around the city. My friends and I, we visit Boston once in a while, and, you know, it's my, it's my stomping grounds, my old stomping grounds, so I love going there. I try to go to Fenway at least once a year since I was a kid. The Red Sox were my uh, favorite team. My digress here. Um, and uh, uh, I, I'm like, you're digressing. Uh, it's not in the notes. Um, now, uh, I'm in Boston, and I, I love the city of Boston, um, and I love to drive my friends around, and, and sometimes I, I try to play tour guide a little bit. I'm driving around, and I'm looking for a restaurant, because I could have sworn this restaurant was somewhere. It was in this one place. But I can't find it for some reason. Now, women, you know, men, you've got to understand this. Women, very, women, men always say women are so illogical. Women are so logical. They're so irrational. But actually, women are very logical about very practical things. One of them, you know, and, and I can't speak to their illogic or their unreasonableness about other areas, but I can speak to, I mean, they may, they may not be. Everyone's different. But just like men, right? But uh, am I getting myself in trouble? Am I trying to cover over? Uh, but, like, when you're, when, when, Women are very practical uh, when it comes to things like driving. You don't know where something is. We have this thing called a GPS. You're so into gadgets, and you have three versions of it. You have one on your phone, one on your watch, and one, an actual GPS in your car. Sometimes you have four. You have the actual car's navigation system, and yet men don't use it. You know, they have the map you know, that's always running, but they don't use the GPS. So they were driving around. I'm like, oh, gosh, I could have sworn it was here somewhere. And my wife is always like, you know, uh, we, you know Asians tend to have a culture of uh, deference. So they're like, well, you know, there is a GPS in a car, you know. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, driving around. I could have sworn it was here somewhere. And, and she goes, yeah, you know, that guy, he seems like he lives around here. You know, it's kind of like all these hints, right? Well, that guy, that guy's actually directing other people to places. Maybe he's directing them to that restaurant, you know, or maybe, uh, you know, wow, there's like, a, there's like a, a place that says, if you're lost, check your GPS, you know. There's like signs uh, from God telling us to look at the GPS here. And I'm, meanwhile, what do we do? We don't listen because we don't, we know. We di- you know, we know, but we don't know. We didn't know, but we knew. You know, it's one of those kind of things. We ignore our conscience. And then, um, you know, you're always like, well, you know, you make comments like, what? I didn't know this. When did this light show up? And that, I've been away for like 10 years. And what, where is this light from? You start to blame shift, right? And then as you're driving, you start to get upset. You're like, dude, I was like the best when it comes to this kind of stuff. I knew where everything was, you know? Like, stop talking to me because all of a sudden it's the person who's trying to give you the good advice, right? Why do we do that? You know why we do that? And you've got to be honest about these stupid things. Why do we do that? You do it because um, when you're... Men are supposed to know how to get to places, right? Let's be, if you're a guy, you, you want to be, it's like this unstated thing where you're, you have to be a good driver and you have to know how to get somewhere. And um, so it's actually so stupid and yet so nuanced 
Because when you're driving around and you're lost, when my wife says, let's just ask somebody for directions, she's, what she really means by that is, let's just ask for directions, right? But what you hear is what? You're not man enough to get from point A to point B. It's foolish, right? It's very foolish. And so what you have is a car full of hungry people, right? And you're going to miss your reservation and you're stressed out. You see what we do to ourselves? You're very small in your own eyes, so you can't accept the truth that you better ask for help, that it's better to ask for help. Even the smallest things can become a monument in your life because you know stats about a basketball player. Even the smallest things can be a monument in our lives. Saul heard, but he didn't really hear that God anointed you. God chose you which means God treasures you, which means God honors you. You don't need, when God says do something, you honor him by doing it because he treasures you, because he honors you. And so to obey him is to say I'm yours because he has made himself yours. You see, that's how it's a relationship. Saul knew, but he didn't really know that God honored him. He knew on one level, it just didn't shape him. It just didn't change him. It just didn't grip him. He saw, but he didn't see. And because he didn't really see, he became blind. And so he's blind. He heard, but he didn't really hear. And so he becomes deaf. And when you're blind and you're deaf, deaf. If you're spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, look what happens. What Saul says is, you know, he says, uh, you know, I've done everything. You know, and, and as a result, everything he thinks, everything he says, it's to ignore his conscience, it's to blame other people or blame other things, it's to justify himself. What about you? What about you? How does this work out in your life? You knew, but you didn't really know. And because you didn't know the good news, because it never went in, because, it, you, know, because you grew up in the church and you can't possibly admit to people that, I think now I'm starting to understand this. Now I'm starting to get this. Because you didn't know the good news, you can't accept the bad news about yourself. If you had known the good news, if you had known the love of God, if you know the value of God, the treasure of God, then the truth about your sin, the truth about your flaws, they'll never define you. They can't own you. You see? That's the good news of grace. They can't own you. Yes, it's devastating. Yes, it's painful. Yes, you experience the consequences. Yes, it annoys people like crazy sometimes. Yes, it frustrates you and it breaks you and sometimes speaks lies into you, but it will never undo you for good. It will never define you for good. You are justified in Christ. The Lord has shown his favor to you. Rosemary Miller, see, if you don't do that, you're going to be building monuments. If you don't trust that, you're going to be building monuments all your life. And that creates labor and hard work and sweat and failure and aggravation and painfulness and the deceit that comes with that. It's corrosive to your soul. Rosemary Miller, um, she's the wife of a network of churches in our denomination um, in Philadelphia. She's really, her husband actually, really instrumental in bringing me to understand the gospel. You know, I thought I was saved, well, I, I believe I came to the Lord when I was nine. Um, but I didn't really truly grasp the gospel. Long after I became a leader in the church, long after I grew, you know, my pastor was uh, grooming me to become an elder in this church at a very young age, uh, large church in Boston. 
But it wasn't until much later on that I realized that I didn't really understand or grasp grace in my life. It wasn't until like, probably like my mid-20s that I really first started to grasp the gospel. Rosemarie Miller, he wrote the, she wrote this book. Um, we have it downstairs. It's in our book section. If you're interested in purchasing a copy, we have a lot on, on, uh, in store, and you could, you could certainly buy it. Rosemarie Miller uh, writes this. She says, I love to be in control. I'm addicted to duty and order, my rights, my ways, and outward performance. I'm outwardly moral, yet inside I'm full of anxieties and fears and guilt. For years I heard the words of the gospel, but I never heard the music. And if you don't hear the music, you can't dance. You can't dance. Is that you? If God is not your monument, if the gospel is not your monument, something else is going to be your monument. For Saul, it was being a successful king. He had to be like the kings around him. He had to compete. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it became his defining thing, and that's what ruined him. So when God took that away from him, and later on David enters in and was being groomed, Saul became violent. It was this nightmare that became a reality. What's the cure? I've got to close the sermon. What's the cure? Samuel says, God made you great. It didn't sink into Saul how loved he was, and that was the root cause of his self-deceit, the root cause of his sin, and, and the cause of his arrogance, and the cause of his labor and his lies and building monuments. But you or I, we have a great resource. We have the ultimate resource to cure us from our own lies, our own self-deceiving. The love, a love, you know, Saul heard that God loved him. Saul knew, but he didn't really know. We have such a greater resource for understanding God's love in our lives. Centuries later, in Gethsemane, Jesus Christ is praying. On the eve of his death, he's praying. You know what he prays? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, what he's saying is, Father, in a sense, I know what I'm about to face, and it's terrifying me. I mean, God himself became so vulnerable and he was so concentrated and so focused in his prayer that his sweat was dropping like beads of blood. And the thing is, as he's praying and he's so focused and he's witnessing the horror, he died twice. He witnessed the horror of what he's going to experience on the cross. He says, Lord, Father, take this cup from me if you're willing, but not my will. Yours be done. You know what he's saying? I will obey to the end. I will obey, Father. And he did. And he did it in full. Jesus Christ is our resource. Where we couldn't go, he went. Where we wouldn't go, he went for us. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you are not pleased. I have come to do your will. You know what that means? Samuel says, Saul, God doesn't really want sacrifices and rituals. He wants obedience. He wants his will to become your will. He wants you. That's what he wants. Jesus Christ comes and says, I want your will to be my will. We are one. I will have come to obey. I will obey. Jesus Christ says, I have come to do your will, I will obey. And Jesus, he doesn't obey to become holy. 
You know, that's not why he was already holy. The Hebrews writer says, Jesus Christ obeyed to make us holy. He went where we wouldn't go, where we couldn't go, even at our best. That's why we build monuments, because we need the approval. We need righteousness. Righteousness is really what it, what it means to be approved. We need righteousness. We need approval. We want to be told by somebody outside of us that we are okay because that's how we build, and we pay a tremendous price for that. But when Jesus Christ died, that was the perfect obedience. He went all the way. And it satisfied the wrath of God. He says, take this cup from me. That cup that Jesus Christ was talking about was the cup of God's wrath that was going to be poured out on sinners. It was poured out fully and wholly till the very last drop was poured out on Christ. And he took it all. He took it all. He drank all of God's wrath. He got everything that we deserved so that we could get everything that Jesus Christ deserved. The honor, the glory, the praise, the love of God, the acceptance, the righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him, in him, hidden in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the true king of kings. He was great, truly great, but he became small. Philippians chapter 2, in your call to worship, it says he emptied himself. He was great, and yet he emptied himself of all of that and became small so that we who are small, and as a result in our inferiority, we're trying to act superior, we're trying to look like a king, we're trying to feel kingly in our own definition of kingliness, we, kingliness, we who are small, we can become great in, our, in God's heart. Will you plunge your insecurities, your inferiority, Will you plunge your labor, your trying, your trying hard? Will you plunge your fatigue, your anxiety in the grace of God and let that be the monument of God's honor in your life? Will you do that? Then you will honor him. You know, when you look at the beauty of Christ, this broken, marred person like you heard in the offertory today, this broken, marred God for you, you will honor him. You will love him. He will be even more beautiful to you. You will serve him in your work. You will serve him in your family. You will serve him in your relationships. The cross, if the cross is held up as your monument, it's one that can never be broken down. It is the highest of all. It was raised up. We need it, and yet we can't build it. And yet Jesus built it, raised up. He was lifted up on the cross for our sake. Let that melt away your lies, your self-deception. Because now you know the real truth. When you look at the cross, you know the real truth about who you are, your sin. And you know the real truth about God, his grace, your loved, your honored. Every time you look at the cross, every time you look at the empty tomb, you know you are loved and yet God is faithful. You are loved, yet God honors his promise to the end, to the death, and to be risen again. The Apostle Paul says, when he died, you died with him. And when he rose, you will, you will be risen again with him. What a blessing is that? That is the honor. You are loved. You are honored. Not because of your obedience, but because of Christ's obedience. Not because of your moral record, but because of Christ's moral record. Not because of your merit, but because of Christ's merit. Then when you believe this, then when you take this and plant that truth in your life, you can obey with gratitude because Jesus becomes beautiful to you. You will love him because you know That God wants you, and he is king, and yet he is lover in your life. He wants you. Will you heed that, take that in, embrace that truth? It will shape your life.
it will change your life. It will take away the fatigue. It will take away the anxiety. It will take away the brokenness. There's still pain when you fail, but it will take away the sting. Will you trust that? Let's pray.